EAs in the traditional co-located office environment where traditionally is assigned to an exec or an exec team and they book travel, the conference rooms, the schedule jockeying. And so this exec assistant was kind of like your backstop to handle all those things, but not involved in the work. And so I think the way that we use it in the levels context where really delegating processes and tasks that we would otherwise spend our own time doing. And that's where it adds a ton of value in our context. And so I think if we look at the tasks across most of the team, I think we all have the, the time and the bandwidth and the patience to work on our own personal tasks. It's really the work-related minutia that gets taken off the plate. And that makes a ton of space. I'm Ben Grenell part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. There is no better way of scaling your time than working with other people, working with team members that you can delegate tasks to. And these are not just recurring tasks, not things that are prescriptive, that there's only one way of doing. The way of really scaling your time is having people who can help to make decisions and use discretion where needed. In some cases, having somebody to scale your time is as simple as delegation and trust. Well, for the Levels team, we've been working a lot with EAs, executive assistants, and we've got this team from a company called Athena, a huge network of EAs that we work with to scale our time. And they're very much a force multiplier in how we can continue to be more productive. So Sam Korkos, co-founder and CEO of Levels, Ms. Michael Mizrahi, head of operations, and I, the three of us sat down and we talked about this idea of working with EAs. How do you flip the heuristic on its head, that heuristic being, well, I'm going to outsource things that are transactional, that are recurring, that are very prescriptive and easy to follow to EAs. How do you flip that on its head and say, what does it look like when you start to work with EAs and give them some discretion? Allow them to do work that's a lot harder or maybe non-traditional from a typical EA perspective. Does it actually work? Are there tasks that they can take on that help to scale your time to be more effective as a team member and as an individual contributor? So we dug into this idea of working with EAs and went through all these different scenarios, the way that we currently work with EAs, why they're important, and how other people can think about decision-making when it comes to outsourcing their time and tasks. It was a great conversation. Here's where we kick things off. So we're talking about using executive assistants at our company. And even starting with that, even the, the framing of exec assistant is already wrong. I don't think that's the way we use this group of people and kind of have added them to our team. So what we're describing here is adding contractors to our team who can help us with tasks related to our day-to-day -day jobs. This started with Sam reaching out to this group, Athena, this company, Athena, that has a bunch of executive assistants that they pair up with, you know, leaders and tech execs across different companies. Uh, but what we've done over time is really made this a resource available to the entire team. And so anyone and everyone is encouraged to regularly delegate their tasks to one of the Athena EAs that are on our team. And they're really embedded. They're in our tools. They work with us. They understand the cast of characters, the context, and they're able to really take a bunch of the work that we've got on our plates and help us with it. And what this does I'm really just going right, right to it. What this does is it really helps us as individuals focus on where we can add meaningful value 
and really do like work that creates leverage for the company instead of get caught up in a lot of day-to-day tasks and minutia that ends up slowing us down. And so we can set up processes, think through what we want to achieve, and then hand it off to someone that can execute it and run it on a regular basis. And so it takes care of recurring tasks, takes care of a lot of nitty-gritty admin tasks. And in fact, we've been quite surprised at the level of kind of work product and quality that we can get with this team. And so I think we can spend some time talking about all of that, explore what it's done for us and kind of where we're going, because this team is growing. I think it's a team of about 10 right now that supports our team of 50. And so it's been interesting to see that growth. Yeah, one of the things that there are all these principles, like how to use EAs effectively, but I think there's a foundation. It might even be worth rewinding all the way to Sam's told the story before of how he first started working with Lori as an executive assistant. But the question to pose, and like Sam can dig into it, the question to pose is like, when people find out that we're working with EAs or they ask, they're like, well, I don't really know what to delegate. And there's this like, I don't know if it's a mental hurdle, but people, the question is like, why do people in general find it so hard to find something to delegate when it's actually pretty easy once you get going? So I don't know, Sam, maybe like rewind into the story because it's such a good story of how you just started yeah. working with Lori and she's been around for a decade now. Yeah, Lori's been my my assistant for I think about nine years now. It's kind of hard to believe. And uh, I think this was after reading a book. I think it was after reading the four hour work week and Tim Ferriss in the book mentions how delegation takes practice and it's really important. And so I posted an ad on Craigslist where I, I was looking for somebody to delegate things to, and I didn't actually have anything for her to do. I gave myself the challenge of finding something to delegate. So basically, once I hired her, I had to figure out how do I take some of these things that I'm working on now and hand them off to somebody else. And it took a lot of practice. It did not come naturally to me. And over the course of working with Lori, realizing when she would fail at something, it was almost always because I didn't give her enough context or I made too many assumptions. So when you work with a an assistant, an EA, a personal assistant, however you want to define the term. The challenge for most people, I've, I've talked to a lot of friends who have tried working with assistants. And the problem is there's like, there are some default things that you just assume an EA does or like, oh, they handle scheduling. But I've actually found those to be the least effective tasks for an EA. Those are much better handled with something like Calendly or automated tooling. What people really struggle with is, I think it's the ambiguity and the discomfort. It's not a muscle that most people flex on a regular basis. It can feel like, it doesn't feel like you're doing the work to get something done. You're, it's sort of like uh, a lot of programmers that I know, they, when I watch their workflow, they don't have any snippets. They don't use hotkeys. And they just do, they know how to make something work. But when I say to them, like, hey, I noticed you're doing all this stuff in React, you know, you could create a snippet in VS Code that pre-generates this template every time you do it. I noticed you've already done it 10 times today for a component. You know, you can just make this a snippet. It'll take you probably three to five minutes to set it up. And every time it saves you five minutes. 
And there's a reluctance to do that for a lot of people because it doesn't feel like doing the work. It's sort of like work that enables work. I think it's, there's some similar feeling in the reluctance there where spending 10 minutes defining the process to hand it off to somebody else and they might not get it right the first time. I think it's because there's some ambiguity that it might take another iteration. It might take 20 minutes. It might take 30 minutes to hand it off. I think that's what leads people to not delegate more things. It's also the practice just comes from knowing what you can delegate. I don't think there's a shortcut other than just keep trying different things. And sometimes the result comes back. It's like, okay, I guess I have to keep doing that or somebody else has to do that. So there's no shortcut to just practicing as much as you can. There's an interesting similarity here to some of the sensation that people get when you take away Slack and you take away meetings and all of a sudden your day is wide open. You have that moment where you hit the pause and you're like, okay, what do I do now? And it's like, well, you do the work. Like this is the part where you get to think and, and strategize and like do the heavy lifting. <laughs> and so there's that blank space and there's something similar about delegating work out. You get this feeling like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. If I delegate this out, then what do I do? Like that, this is my job. Why would I give this to someone else? Sure, someone else could potentially do it, but I've got the knowledge, I've got the context. And so I'm the best person to keep connecting all these dots. But only when you delegate it out and you get it off your plate and you create all this extra space, can you move on to the other higher priority or different priorities uh, and just kind of keep moving and keep adding value across the company. And so there's something interesting there about that feeling of leaning into the discomfort in your day, in your work, in, in delegation, so that you can make room for other things. In general, I think one of the misconceptions is because we're human in every way and we default to this hyperbolic discounting of thinking these short-term like three-minute tasks are not that expensive. We're like, well, it's only three minutes, but it's not the three minutes. If the task comes up, like let's make an assumption right now. You've got a task. It comes up in your brain. You maybe you put it wherever it goes, whether it's on your calendar, on some notepad, it doesn't matter how you categorize that. And then you think, okay, I have to do this thing. Carrying the cognitive load of like at 4 p.m. or the next day or sometime, this three-minute thing needs to get done. It doesn't take many three-minute things of like, never mind the actual end of three minutes. It's like that is probably... 29 minutes of total work. Like there's probably some like 10X factor applied to this thing to get done that is like, oh, upload welcome video for someone. Like it's just something so transactional. Download a Zoom video, put it in Loom and redistribute on threads. These are all things that executive assistants become a supercharger. Like to use the car analogy, they really supercharge the engine to scale your time. And it doesn't take that many of these small tasks. Never mind like, meaty and meaningful and valuable tasks. It doesn't take that many of those to go, cool, you're actually not doing valuable work right now. You're wasting time and your time is worth, an engineer will call it $10,000 an hour. Like it's worth so much money that three minutes extrapolated over the course of a week is so expensive for a company. And that's something that can really help anybody. It doesn't matter whether it's personal or work-related tasks. It's just EAs are a superpower. I've personally failed with EAs in the past. And so this is my first time actually being successful with it. And I have two examples. One was in some of my, my busiest days at Uber, my personal life was kind of getting set to the side. And so a friend of mine who 
was way more important than I was, had an EA who had some extra hours to share. And so I jumped on and took half of this time for a month. And I figured I could move along a lot of my personal tasks. This person didn't have access to my work email or my work calendar. And so it was very much like a personal list thing. And very quickly realized like these projects didn't add up and they were way more difficult to delegate than I thought because there was no formed output that I needed. There were just things that I needed to move along. And then anytime it got to travel or calendar management, that was so intertwined with work that it just didn't make sense. Uh, and so quickly fizzled out. And then the other example is I think EAs in the traditional co-located office environment where traditionally is assigned to an exec or an exec team and they book the travel, the conference rooms, the 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 schedule jockeying, you need to move things around and running meetings meeting and got to get lunch and uh, need a room because rooms are like the hot commodity in offices, at least they used to be. And so this executive assistant was kind of like your backstop to handle all those things, but not involved in the work. And so I think the way that we use it in the levels context where we're really delegating processes and tasks that we would otherwise spend our own time doing, and that's where it adds a ton of value in our context. And, and so I think if we look at the tasks across most of the team, I think we all have the, the time and the bandwidth and the patience to work on our own personal tasks. It's really the work-related minutia that gets taken off the plate. And that makes a ton of space. Yeah, it's, um, it's really important to recognize the value of automation. This is maybe a semantic distinction, but I'm talking about automation versus delegation. There's... A lot of what the EAs do for me, certainly the highest leverage things for me would really fall into the automation camp. They are things that it would be better if a computer could just do it, but there is no software or API that solves this problem. And so they can fill that gap. I posted a video on Twitter like a year ago, maybe more than that. It was during the seed round process of how I send emails the day before for every call, how I put them all in Notion so I keep track, how I do all the follow-ups. That was one of the first tasks that I handed off to an EA is figure out who these people are in my calendar, who I have calls with in the future, send them this email, create a Notion template so that when I jump in for the day, I have my list of calls, I see who they are, I see the context, and I can quickly get up to speed on it. So those are the kinds of things where they're all happening in the background right now. And in the past, I was doing them. It took me 30 to 60 minutes every day just to prepare for my calls the following day. And now it takes me zero time. Occasionally, I have some feedback where they created the wrong template because they didn't have enough context to know who the person was. And then I would say, oh, you couldn't have known this. Next time, if you can't find them, make sure you check my Twitter DMs and LinkedIn because it's possible that they reached out to me there and if they did, then you'll have the context. So just having those feedback cycles, there's, there's something about, I think people often feel like handing things off to an EA is a one-way door where once you've handed it off, like you lose control over it. But really the key to getting better at delegating is to figure out how to de-risk the request. So making it just like reducing the scope of what it is you need done and increasing visibility where you can now build confidence that they're doing it consistently and they're doing it correctly or doing it completely in parallel, where you're still doing the thing you were doing anyway, but you have the EA try to do it as well. And if it doesn't work, then you didn't lose anything. 
just like, okay, well, I guess this is too complicated. They can't do it. So figuring out how to reduce the stakes to just try to get those cycles in to get an EA to do it, I think is, uh, is really compelling. I think another thing to tie into that is people often make too many assumptions about how much effort it takes. I have found for me, the overwhelming majority of the time, if I'm doing a thing that I want to hand off to an EA, all I have to do is record a loom of my workflow doing the thing. And then I just say, all right, you just watch me do this for 30 minutes. Can you repeat back to me what you think the process should be? And then if that works, we'll go from there. So like, you don't, you don't necessarily have to be the person who defines the process. You can just do your workflow and then they can, you can delegate the definition of the process if you're able to record your workflow. So just figuring out how to reduce that lift in order to start getting things delegated. Loom is one of the most undervalued business tools of the last decade. <laughs> it is infinitely more powerful than Slack or some of these other tools. Yeah, looking through, I've got, we've got this database of all of our tasks, our process database in our wiki and Notion. I didn't write any of these process docs for a few dozen of these tasks. I recorded a loom doing the thing, maybe said some things along the way. And then Vanessa, who I work with, has built all of these into templates and processes. And so the redundancy there is also great because if someone else needs to step in, if Vanessa's out on vacation, the knowledge doesn't live with me and it doesn't live with Vanessa. We've got plenty of documentation and process and looms recorded for each and every time this task gets done. And so it's helpful for debugging when something goes wrong. And it's helpful for training moving forward if someone else needs to pick up the tasks. One of my favorite uses, and I don't know that either of you have seen this, was when Zach took paternity leave. He was going to be out for four weeks. You know, there's a lot going on on the legal front. You know, we're in the middle of a fundraise. There's a bunch of equity issuances, a lot of contracts in flight. Uh, and he needed some way to stay loosely in touch. And so he leaned on Joyce, who he works with, to augment and support him while he was out. And what she did was daily review all of his emails and tag a few of them into a high priority folder that he can check in on every few days. It was just a really creative use case. And he outlined the process for like which emails are important, which domain names to watch out for. And then she ran this process. And from what I heard, it, it looks like it worked. But that was a really good use of, of an EA to reinforce our kind of cultural principles of really disconnecting if you're going to be offline, but building in systems so that you can stay in touch the way you need to with some peace of mind. And so Zach created out of office, a global out of office memo, and then specific ones for the people he was working with. So me and him had a Ms. and Zach out of office. And then he had one with Joyce as well. Like, I'm going to be out. Here's what you need to cover while I'm out. Or here's what to know. Here's how to reach me. Here's where these documents go. And so that was a really good use case by Zach. I have something somewhat similar, which is my EA goes through my email twice a day right around the time the mailman does the batch send. And they, instead of flagging as important, they do the opposite, which is marking as not important. So they filter out a lot of the things that I don't really need to get back to. It cuts down on my email load by at least 50%, maybe 75%, just so I can stay focused on what needs to be done now. One of the, the interesting things with EAs is this heuristic that I think we can challenge our societal heuristic of how to create and capture value from EAs. And that is EAs are great at transactional work that doesn't require a lot of company context or discretion. Like we, we have this mental model. And so we've started challenging that internally a little bit and saying, 
is that actually right? Like, just because we think that's right, what happens if, and this has all been experimental, but what happens if you bring an EA into the fold and you say, and you take it as far as you can, go write, and we haven't quite done this yet, but let's say, Vanessa, go write a growth strategy memo and spend five hours on it and give like four bullet points. So you record a loom and it might be five minutes and you start a notion doc and it's literally five bullet points. And the point is to come back and be like, what is this going to look like? And so we've done this a couple of times where we've had, Vanessa has done, she started the foundation for one memo. It was around crossing the chasm and it was just research, like research that might've taken two or three hours. And she came back with an 8,000 word memo that she did in two hours because it was a lot of, aggregation of information. It wasn't saying this is how levels will cross the chasm, but it's providing a foundation so that there are enough rocks there and you can start to fill in around it. And then she did the same thing with some research around big. So big food, big pharma, big sugar. It was this idea of what's it going to come back? What's it going to look like? And so she put together all of this information and you go, wow, if you can start to outsource the things that you think like no, no, I have to have, like, I've got discretion. I've got company context, all the things that that feed our egos as humans, like thinking why we're so self-important at like being able to, the only person in the world who can do this task is me. As soon as you like remove that and you say like, could Vanessa do this? And she comes back and something's like, not just like good, it's like really good. Then you go, what does it look like when we start to scale up? So we've taken it to the extreme with not just memos, but even um, we've got, Tony has, nine people. So we've been working to scale his time. We've got nine people working on multimedia. He's the only multimedia producer. And Irwin has taught himself how to use Premiere Pro for video editing. Vanessa has taught herself audio editing into script. Like we still will send a loom, but we're doing all these things that are value add work instead of just like, hey, Vanessa, can you book me a haircut? And like, sure, there's still like some value in that, but it's more along the lines of like, what does it look like when you treat them like a team member? That's where you get a ton of value. And it's been a very fun experiment to run to keep like, how far can we push this thing until it's like, basically the EAs do all of our work and we're just like pawns on the chessboard. Then the next question I think comes up, which is when do you hire internally and, and what defines the line, right? If folks are getting involved and starting to have discretion and applying thought that has judgment that's relevant, there's some line where someone might say, it sounds like you just have employees who are contractors. How do you make the distinction? Yeah, I think the hiring support staff is something that people often have a struggle justifying, but it is almost always the right decision if you can build a structure to be able to use that time effectively. When you calculate the difference in time, like if it takes... Mike Haney, our editorial director, 15 minutes a week to put together some slides to update people. If that 15 minutes could be done automatically by the EA team, that 15 minutes also, we also forget how much of, how much of a, a load, just that cognitive burden of knowing that you have to do it costs. It's much more than 15 minutes. It's probably an hour of cognitive load to be able to finish that. So. I think hiring a support staff as early as humanly possible is almost always the right call. The, one of the challenges with EAs is that, especially when they're virtual, is that 
this is the the struggle that I've I've seen with a lot of people is because they're so physically removed, people often don't know what they're doing. And so it's extra important to have a feedback mechanism where you're like we do, we ask the EAs to record themselves on a loom doing the work so that if we need to debug something later, that's part of it. But it's also just to build the confidence to just know that things are being done and that you can close the loop. Like there have been many times we have a database of every task that has been completed and a walkthrough of that task. And every once in a while, I'll ask myself, hey, I wonder if that thing is still being done that I asked for. And I go to the database and it's like, oh yeah, Bea did it yesterday. Okay. And I can't even watch the recording of her doing it. And it's like, yep, perfect. Okay, great. I, I now have that, that trust and confidence there. So it's super, super important to find mechanisms for building that trust. Because when people are in other countries, you barely interact with them at all. You need to really know that things are being followed through on. So in terms of when do you bring them on in-house or full-time? I'm not totally sure that it matters. It's more just a scope and context question. So I was talking to somebody the other day, this was like a few months ago, and his EA ended up doing such a great job that when he left his role, he actually recommended his EA fill his executive position. <laughs> and yeah, that's not a common thing, <laughs> but she moved from the Philippines to like take on this major leadership role at the company, which is pretty wild. Wow. And yeah, and that just shows you like, if you can build this confidence, it's very possible that as they take on more and more responsibility, they can end up filling that position. So I think in general, figuring out a really good way of having that long-term trusting relationship and just building confidence over time because that physical separation and the lack of the lack of uh, regular oversight can lead to just like a slow erosion of trust yeah and re removing the bias that's the key is removing the bias that an ea is only capable of transactional work that i lay out perfectly like that's where it's really easy to fall into a trap or to go wrong is like, well, like, no, like there's no one that could possibly do this memo, right? Sure. It might be challenging, like to the question of when to hire somebody internally. Well, it's really hard for an EA to have enough company context and to spend time thinking, let's use community as an example. It would be really challenging for somebody who is overseeing many tasks that have a wide scope to go really deep on one category for months at a time. Like that's just not possible. And maybe this EA becomes very good at that one thing, community. It's still harder to say, think really deeply about it, have enough company context, have breadth and skill set. Like let's say this community person is technical. They've got a business lens and I don't know, like a design degree. They've got like all of these like cross-functional skills that just make them really good at that one thing. And it's still a matter of knowing that you are giving someone discretion, but knowing that it's also like, you're going to need people who can be thought leaders and advocates within your company to work across product and community and business and like name all of these functional areas. So it's, it's an ongoing challenge to, to figure that out. But if you can get the balance, right, like you really can find that EAs can do more than just giving them like these recurring tasks of check my, yeah emails once a day. One of the things 
I've already emphasized this, but I'll emphasize it again, is finding ways to just reduce the, reduce the threshold for trying to hand something off. Oftentimes, you could just record yourself. So like when I mentioned the, how I have my EA go through my email and filter things out, the entire process for that was just me doing my normal routine, which is going through email, and just while I'm doing it, having a loom recording it and just saying out loud, it's like, oh yeah, these kinds of LinkedIn messages always go to not important. These GitHub notifications always get, get moved. This kind of thing always gets moved. This one sometimes, this one sometimes, this one always. And I just went through my normal workflow at just like the normal speed that I would do it. And then I handed that off. There's no extra work there. And the worst case scenario is that nothing happens. And it turns out to be too complicated and then they don't do it. And then fine, handing things off, like there was one project that I wanted to do an analysis of one of our channels. And I asked one of the EAs to spend 20 hours giving me some information related to these channels. She spent 20 hours, the deliverable was exactly what I was looking for. And it turns out like the information just wasn't very useful. <laughs> so it wasn't on her. It was just like, oh, it turns out that it, there's, there's not a lot of good information here. And then I just threw it out and that's fine. Like it's not a, given the relative time cost, if I had spent 30 minutes working on that and then came to the same conclusion, instead of her spending a half a week, her job is to free up my time. And she did that very, very effectively. So this is like a comparative advantage question. So it took her more chronological time to get to the same outcome, but it saved me a lot of time. And that's super, super high leverage. I'm thinking back to when I onboarded and was joining. Sam, you were handling a lot of the operations tasks at the time in the months preceding. And you had recorded looms of a lot of these without any foresight of what they might be used for. But when I came on board and started watching those videos, my onboarding was supercharged because I didn't need to ask anyone for help or have context on how a task was done. And even if there was a 30 minute loom, I could watch that and get up to speed on what I needed to do to now own that task without even you knowing or having to get involved. And so there's a lot of lessons to apply, even if you're not working with exec assistants, when it just comes to being really, really aware of the work that you're doing and mindful of like when you're actually doing process-oriented work versus when you're doing critical thinking and putting down a memo and strategy. There's a big difference between those two, that those categories of work. And so I'm just thinking about folks who say like, well, we can't afford EAs or we won't work with them or, or whatever it is. There's a lot of lessons still in just thinking about work in this way. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say you can't afford not to have them. <laughs> if you have your most expensive people at the company spending their time doing tedious work, like one of the things that I've really been pushing our engineering team to do more is to use the EA team. Like we have some of our engineers, this is a, a frustration that I have had in engineering teams in the past is there's so many different places for documentation that you have to like, all right, I have to write out this long description in the pull request. Then I basically have to copy over that information into Slack so that people know that it's there. And then I have to put it in the documentation and Confluence. And I'm just like, 
just duplicating information in a bunch of different places and they inevitably fall out of sync. I just don't like doing it. And me as an engineer, it's a very bad use of my time and I hate it. <laughs> or you can have a single source of truth where engineers agree to put the information. And then if you need to replicate it, you just have the EA team automatically just as part of their job every day, check every pull request and then duplicate that information in all the places where it's relevant. And they can totally do that. And it saves the engineers a ton of time and a ton of overhead. And it probably happens a lot more consistently too, because engineers really don't like doing it. So they're going to find reasons not to if they don't want to. There's something nice about the async time scale that we work on, where most of these tasks can get completed within a day or so, and they don't need to be done within a few hours, and the work still gets done and everything ends up in the right place. And so having a natural buffer built in allows for this kind of work to happen as well. We did a, a podcast, and it was about Eng documentation. And so we were riffing on all these things. And I half-jokingly said, well, why don't we get to a point where the EAs are doing the reviews, right? Like, because it's actually a transactional thing, like says the guy who's not an eng, but it's transactional in the sense of if you teach somebody what to look for and how to look for it, like that's actually what they're really good at is pulling apart detail and go, does this recipe match exactly? Like, is it, is it exactly laid out as it should be? Because if you think about the amount of time and context switching involved in doing reviews and maintaining velocity, good engineers are there to write. And like, sure, good engineers are there to fix bugs and to do reviews and to say, hey, this could be better. Why, why was this done in this certain way? But if you can find a way to use a, another team member as that strategic resource, that being an EA, like it's a really interesting mental model. It gets back to the idea of, well, how do you test for this? Because it's, it's so easy to go, like, that's not possible. Let's ignore it. That's sort of like the default, I think. No, no, like there's no way anyone could ever do this. So then people don't explore it. Well, a way of working really well with an EA is to be prescriptive. If you want things done, like write out snippets and go hit semicolon, whatever your snippet is, send this email. And like, that's prescriptive and they'll follow it. The way to stretch for discretion is to actually give, or at least the way we've been trying it is to give as little direction as possible, which sounds counterintuitive. But the reason you're doing it is to see how little information you can give them and how good what they come back with is so that you go, wow, if I actually gave them like 15 minutes of direction instead of three and did this 10 times, they would be exponentially better at doing that one task. And so you go, is this possible? And so these are the things that we're trying to test with like the idea of one-time tasks versus recurring, high value versus transactional work that you're prescriptive in the approach. But it's a neat thought exercise to go through to go, is it possible? And it's like intuitively, and again, this is probably being <laughs> totally irrational and overly optimistic. Intuitively, I think it is possible, like especially if you're talking about relatively straightforward builds to have someone like an EA do reviews on code. Like I really do, says the guy who has never <laughs> written a line. But conceptually, I think it's possible. So I don't know, challenge it. Like, is that, what, what do you think, Sam? Yeah, I think that it's not as crazy as you think it is. There are things that EAs should be able to do in this process that are currently being done by engineers that don't need to be. So for example, 
the EAs can function as a, a first pass on pull request formatting. So like, did the person do, did they fill out the template? Did they record a loom? Are they following the basic guidelines? That's the like, in my mind, EAs are the, the entropy fighters in organizations where mm. as you add new people, processes start to get done a little bit less consistently. And then eventually it all just breaks because people stop doing them. At a minimum, you need to know that that's happening, but better would be you have somebody who's actively fighting against it. And so some companies have like the documentation czar where <laughs> they review every pull request and if you didn't update the documentation, they will decline your pull request until you update it. So like they have final veto on everything that goes into the code base. They're fighting the entropy of technological debt and bad documentation. So EAs can do things like that. That is a good role for them is making sure that things are being consistently followed. They can watch every loom and they can say, hey, we request that everyone does a walkthrough and does a code walkthrough and you only did the application walkthrough and you didn't walk through the code, please redo this loom and also go through the code that you changed. Another thing is sort of the QA function. If we have good specs up front, they could potentially get it up and running and they can say, all right, here's the spec, here's what's in this pull request, do these things match? And they can just like give a thumbs up or thumbs down. And that's something that Loom actually helps a ton with this, which is when you have a Loom recording of what is in the pull request and you see the person with their emulator open walking through it. One of the most tedious things for me doing code review when I, when I was spending a lot of my time doing that, managing Eng teams, was it's like, all right, we've got the new pull request open. I've got to pull it locally on my machine I have to reinstall all the dependencies because it's going to potentially be a different version. I have to get it up and running on the emulator. I have to like do all the sign-in stuff. I have to, it often takes 15 to 30 minutes just to get the environment into a circumstance where I can even see if it does anything close to what it's supposed to do. So being able to do this in video or being able to have somebody else jump into that step that saves you 30 minutes on every pull request it can save a massive amount of time, especially for people like senior engineers, which are some of your most expensive resources in the company. So like, if you can find a way for an EIA to make the code review process for senior engineers 25% more effective, that's a huge, huge leverage point for the company. One of the, the analogies to jump into is, let's make the assumption that you can teach like, I mean, not assumption, it's true. Just so you can teach somebody, like teach someone a certain language and they pick this up and then they're doing a review and maybe doing a loom walkthrough as there's a review. So if there's a second set of eyes, like somebody's watching that on 2X, like interesting. Well, think about the analogy of a movie set. Those are essentially EAs to like, there are people that have technical skill set, but they're EAs to the lead actor in a movie. The lead actor walks in and everything is set up so that they can do their thing, like do their best work. Imagine the scenario where it's like you had to go and you had to wait and there was like, you watch the lights get set up and because you're, you're the star, 
Yep. You're saying, I want that light there. And I don't know about the lens on that camera and all these things. Like it would be the most absurd thing. There's a reason right. why people that are, it doesn't matter, professional, anything. When you get to an elite level, you're a professional, <laughs> you're a professional hockey player. Like you go on the ice and the Zamboni's already done it. You're outsourcing to all these EAs. And so it's the same like mental model of saying, what am I here to do? I'm here to do what I can do and no one else can and what I'm really good at. Whether you're an actor filming a movie, whether you're a hockey player that is going to face off on the ice, or whether you're writing code, like it's all the same mental model. And so if you start to think of the EAs as a strategic resource that can do things, like if you trust them and have technical skill, like these are people, these are humans, they want to do meaningful work. Nobody wants to, like, nobody wants to be a box folder in a factory. There's a reason why there are machines that do that now because it's just repetitive transaction work. It's not fulfilling. Get them to do like figure out how to build the new box machine. Like someone's into that for sure. I might actually disagree with that last point. The lead actor is a really a perfect analogy for how the support staff really helps. In Cal Newport's latest book, A World Without Email, he talks about how incredibly undervalued support staff is and how most companies wait way too long and almost everyone should have more support staff. Like it is a net increase in company output when you add support almost always. Where I might disagree is that one of my biggest learnings from working with Lore for as many years as I have is that it's maybe this saying uh, different strokes for different folks, which is that she loves doing a lot of the things that I really cannot do. I just don't have the patience for it. Like she loves wrapping Christmas presents and like having them all ready and coordinating that. I regularly, when I see something at a store or I have an idea, I will regularly send Lori a message in like February and I'll say, hey, make sure you send one of these to my brother for Christmas this year. And usually around November, December, I'm scrambling to think like, oh man, what Christmas presents do I get people? And Lori says, oh, I already have these eight gifts wrapped and ready to go. And I'm shipping them on December 20th. It's like, oh, I totally forgot that I told you to do that. So great, take care of that. The kind of like wrapping Christmas presents, the routine of that is something that I couldn't do because I'm like relentlessly novelty seeking. But I, I think that there are many people, I imagine a lot of accountants are this way. It's like being on top of things, having order, bringing order to things is something that is actually something. Let's debate it though. The Lori example is a good one because that is still requires some discretion. I think where it's where we go wrong as a society is assuming that if Lori only for eight hours a day had to wrap the exact same size box with the exact wrapping and there was no other type of work, that's the thing that feels draining. That's what you hear about when people go, my job doesn't feel stimulating. Like they don't feel good about the tasks they're doing. And if, if EAs get treated that same way where it's like, I only ever want you to schedule calendar meetings. Like that's all they do. And they're not, there's not a ton of discretion. Send this Calendly link. That feels deflating, I think, just for anyone. We're humans. Like we need to feel like we're helping to do things that create value. And so it's like finding the way so there's still transactional work, finding the way to use discretion when needed. Like I agree that some people don't want that. Some people feel fulfilled by doing certain tasks. But finding 
the right people doing the right things and then stretching them in the same way we all want to be stretched as professionals. Like we want to be just on the, what's that saying? You're in the flow state when you're just on the edge of your skill set and challenge. Like that's where everyone wants to be because it feels really good. Like it really feels good. And for, let's say the wrapping presents, like Lori might be on the edge of like finding the perfect present and the perfect wrap, like that's putting her in flow. So it's an interesting way of thinking, like using that mental model for how to be really effective with EAs. Yeah. I wonder, like, I do think that different people find joy in different things. Like there are people who love doing books and accounting and I find it mind-numbingly boring. Zach, our head of legal, really doesn't like doing contract law and I don't blame him. I also don't like reviewing contracts. We've been interviewing a number of legal associate candidates and one of the people I interviewed I asked him, you know, what's your ideal day look like? He's like, oh man, I love contract law. If I had my ideal day, it would just be reviewing contracts all day. And I remember thinking during this interview, like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) But, (laughs) but also that's what we're looking for. So like, he is the kind of person who just finding the nuance in the language of contracts is the thing that brings him joy. I think that's great. I wonder if we're if we're projecting too much on the way that we operate or different people operate is like for me, a lot of these things would not be fun. There are people who are for the term used of like they are gardeners. Gardeners often really like their work and they're not like finding the optimal garden. They're just keeping things in order. And I think that is a personality type that is a, a preference. Like you can be in flow state as a gardener or like keeping your, your Zen garden in a particular form. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There's no, there's no judgment associated with this. I think it's just a matter of preference. Man, pulling weeds, like you can get into a flow state with that. That's not a joke. Either. I think the key is just an overarching theme of respect and appreciation and understanding of what the task involves. Right. And so it's not, sending someone to a blackboard to write the same thing 500 times, right? Like this work is really valuable. It's moving the company forward in a meaningful way. It's empowering all of us to do really great work uh, and helping us build towards this mission, right? And so all of this is necessary and helps us get there faster. So as long as everyone has a rightful and like honorable place in that entire picture, all's well. That's a really good framing for it because like, you have to believe that what you're doing is contributing to the larger goal. If our AEA stop working and they stop doing a lot of these like routine tasks, the company would not function anymore. And it's like, they, they really are an integral part of a lot of the processes that we have every day, multiple times a day. So yeah, I, th- I think that's a really good framing for it. I had like, <laughs> being totally honest, I think it was one or two weeks ago, I had sort of this like, moment of reflection <laughs> where I go, I almost messaged you. I go, uh-oh, if Vanessa's gone, the whole multimedia effort's going to crumble. Like I really, I thought it was like that existential and it is sort of true. Like we could ramp somebody up, but the amount of work she is doing to allow us to put out all the content that we do from a podcast standpoint, from a video standpoint, it was one of those things where I was like, uh-oh, we cannot 
lose Vanessa as part of this process. It would, it would come to a halt. Like we would figure it out, but it would come to a halt for like the period of at least one day, probably more like a few until we got the process going again, because everything is a part of the machine. It's lubricant and it's making it work. So it's one of those things where without, as soon as you start to bring them into the fold, they really become levers of your company and scaling your time. One of the things we should dive into though, is we've been talking philosophically about all these things, but what are some takeaways that people can do as far as like Mario? So Mario from the generalist, he, he and I were talking about EAs and he was thinking of working more with them. And it's one of these ideas of like, what exactly can I use them for? I'm trying to figure out same with Wiz, who's one of our investors. I want to use them more. I don't know what I can use them for. So what are some things that if you were to give, if each of you were to give recommendations, what can people do to start delegating? Like where to start and what are good tasks to start with? I think the most obvious one is if there are any tedious recurring tasks that you're currently doing, try to find a way to hand them off. There's automating these things in the background it would be hard for me to explain to somebody just how much leverage i personally get from our ea team right now i think last i looked at the numbers i have enough recurring tasks to occupy about five full-time eas just with like things that i would have otherwise had to do myself there is now more than if i had to do it myself i could never possibly do that much work because it's so fully automated so those types of things, often like very small things, like weekly check-ins on something, just have your EAs do that. Or I added another, just like very simple monthly task, which is I have a spreadsheet where I keep track of how I'm spending my time. And every month the chart gets out of date because it's only up until the current month. And so every month I have to go in and then I manually change it, which only takes a couple minutes. Sometimes I forget how to do it because the calculation's a little confusing. So I just recorded a loom and said, all right, on the first of every month, do this. And it took me two or three minutes to do that. And now I never have to do that again. And they send it to me on threads. So I get a message when it's updated now. So it's just like adding those types of things. They start to really, really add up. So finding those little tiny tasks. I would say another is, like I mentioned, just reducing the, reducing the assumptions around how much work it takes to hand something off. Something you very realistically could do is just open up a loom when you wake up in the morning and just record your entire workflow for the entire day on a big loom and just give that to your EA and say, is there anything in here that you think you could take off my plate and just see what they come back with. Worst case, they come back with nothing. Best case, they say, all right, here are 25 things that I propose I can start doing for you that you won't have to do anymore. Allow yourself to be surprised by just how capable people are. Yeah, plus one to all of that. <laughs> Looking through my tasks, there's a healthy amount of them that are recurring. Uh, and then there are a lot of tasks that are ad hoc, but that come up on a non-recurring basis. 
that I've had to do or handle. And I think a lot of these honestly have, have kept us from having to hire additional full-time staff. And so some examples, things that are likely to go out of date if they're not regularly revisited. So we have a lot of like team directory tables in Notion and everyone's got these fields filled out on their profiles. As new hires join, we put in the onboarding to tell them to fill out these fields, but they don't always get to it. It gets, it gets left over, whatever it is. So on a regular basis, not after each new hire, but let's say every two weeks, Vanessa goes into that team directory, does an audit of all the fields, and then emails those people individually to fill that out. That's something that, you know, there's no API on Notion, or maybe there is now, but we would need engineering time to build this internal process. It takes just a few minutes. And also something that's worth mentioning is that there are probably things that could have notification set up or something like this, but being reached out to by a person makes you much more likely to respond and handle that task. It's very easy to archive a notification or an alert from some automated system. It's much harder to do that when you get a thread from Vanessa with me on CC saying, hey, you're missing this field. Can you please fill it out to keep us up to date? And so those are the kinds of things that we're talking about here that on the whole, keep a really, really healthy system. Everything's up to date. All the information's in the right place. We've got the phone numbers copied over. Then there's examples of ad hoc processes. When someone starts ordering a laptop is something that I previously did. I really don't need to do that. That's a very easy task to outsource. There's like very specific SKUs that we order. The shipping address is in the right place. So that one comes up on demand and there's a process in place to to do all these kinds of little things. And so even just looking at our company task database today, so tasks that got completed this morning until 1.30 Pacific, my time, is about 60 tasks across the team have been automated this morning alone. So there's a lot of work happening in the background, just like updating trackers, doing research, cleaning up calendars, cleaning up the recruiting pipeline and making sure everyone's in the right place, preparing bios for meetings, uploading to YouTube, downloading from these, all of these things in aggregate take up a ton of time. And we're able to keep our team somewhat lean by leaning on the Athena team to run all of this. And so, yeah, ad hoc recurring and anything that you're holding tight and precious can probably be outsourced at some point in time. And it's just having the mindset that someone else can do this and you can free up your time to let go of it. Like Sam mentioned earlier, all of this, nothing here is permanent, can all be edited. You can take a task back if you really like doing it or it was important to you to have that context. You can adjust the process because each time it's completed, you're getting a notification from the team that this was done. And so you can make tweaks along the way. It's very, very iterative. I very much view the Athena team as they're my biggest allies in fighting organizational entropy. I use them all the time. When one of the things that we do, which it's a subtle thing, but it's so helpful, is once a week, they audit our leadership channel in threads, which is just for people in leadership, and it's not shared externally to the rest of the team. And they check once a week, and there's only usually, I don't know, five or 10 threads in there. They will reach out to every person and they'll say, all right, these are the 10 things that came up in leadership this week. Can we declassify this and share it with the rest of the team? And almost every week we find two or three things where we say, oh yeah, let's move this one to general. Let's move this one to marketing. Let's move this one to product. And we find ways of just fighting that overclassification problem, which is the, it is the end state where everything ends up if you're not paying attention. Is everything is classified and only like two or three people get to see any piece of information. 
they also do this for all of our all of our Notion docs as well, where they go through and they they just look for discrepancies, something that is we classified it as public, but it's not shared to the web, or something that's classified as internal, so it's not supposed to be shared publicly, but is shared to the web. And they just go through and they just find out like these are the 25 documents where there's a discrepancy or these are all drafts in our Notion database that are more than a month old. Why haven't we shipped these? It's like, oh, I just forgot to change it. That's good to know. So you don't have all these things that are out of date or it's like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Let's mark it as deprecated. So there's no confusion or, oh yeah, I just need to put like 10 more minutes in and then we can ship this. So those are the kinds of things that they can really help with of just figuring out how to keep things more coherent as time goes on as the organization. The biggest thing that, that I've found as far as making a difference is a trust. So it's this idea of defaulting to trust, like trust that they will do it, trust that they can do it and trust them with the account information. So by giving Vanessa access to basically my entire life down to, I was about to give her access to my bank account to like deal with everything. It allows anything that like I see tasks and by task, I mean like something super transactional as work in my brain and anything that holds up any mental space for work feels like real estate that is occupied for free. So that might be like, okay, go download the lean startup for the leadership book club. And to me, it's like, it doesn't take many of those tasks until you're like, your brain is just filled with garbage. Like it's just like low value stuff. And it doesn't mean like there are people that will enjoy it, but being able to say, Hey, can you go download this thing? So it just pops up on your phone and just not having to like go through the checkout flow and all these things. Those are the things by giving people full trust where you're giving them your account info and your passwords. It's not going to be for everyone. That's for sure. But I find that establishing a level of trust and giving somebody that account access so that you can really start to get them to do these things that are tasks, whether it is, can you format this memo? Can you take these notes? Like there will be chicken scratch notes. Can you put that into some like document in Notion? Here's what it's called. Like all of these things start to feel like a time multiplier. And that's where your ability to work with an EA starts to feel a lot more meaningful they feel good about the work they're doing. They know they're helping you to scale your time. And yeah, it's the idea of if there was one recommended takeaway, it would be once you find somebody you can trust and if you give them access to your accounts and you get them to start doing these line item tasks, downloading eBooks, getting haircuts, creating strategy memos, they all have different complexity it really does make a difference of your time and the way that you enjoy the work because you can start to focus on not being a contract law lawyer if you don't want to be one. I'll add a note on where we've drawn a line and that's that the Athena team is in place to help us with our tasks and our data, but we don't give access to any of our customer data. So anything that involves the business side itself, right? Like interacting with customer support, being able to access any internal information. We have controls in place there where even internally for employees, you have to have a reason to open up someone's account and like provide the help scout ticket number, whatever it might be. So as it relates to privacy and customer data and just respecting our privacy policy and commitment on that side, we've got some lines drawn. Uh, so the Athena team stopped short of any tasks that involve 
that kind of information. Yeah, I think just to continue to emphasize this is it actually doesn't require extra effort to hand something off to an EA. I think people make too many assumptions around that. Other people are generally quite capable, especially if you show them your own workflow. It's pretty easy to get people to see how you do things and try to just replicate that functionality. So as a starting point for most people, I would say just recording recording your daily workflows is probably the best place to start. And you'd be surprised how many things an EA can take from that recording of how you're doing things. As simple as like responding, it can be responding to emails, it can be writing memos, it can be coordinating between people. Running those kinds of experiments is nearly costless. When you think about if EAs are 10 to $15 an hour, which is generally what the cost is for a virtual assistant, it really is not it is not very expensive to start to run these experiments. And that kind of support staff is really a superpower if you can use it effectively. To that point, that's why we were running so many of those experiments because with some of them, like let's say some of the research ones where it was spend anywhere from, I think it was the task was spend anywhere from 15 minutes to no more than two hours. So then I was like, okay, this thing's going to be 30 bucks at the most. And even if I spend like any ounce of effort on this, it's just exponentially different as far as the cost, but that's neither here nor there. Like this experiment might actually be worth $500. Like it's worth some amount of money to find out what the outcome is. But when it's 30 bucks, you're like, run it, run that, like run 200 of those because that's where you're going to start to find all these unlocks. You're using your your laptop camera, right? Yep. Give it a wipe. Part of the 10X digital content memo, one of the leads we can pull on is quality. And one of the recommendations is that we all get cameras. It looks like that actually made a difference. Oh, dude, 100%. Huge. That's weird. Clearly, you have not. <laughs> clearly, you not have, have not read all the quality things that have been written. <laughs>